So now we are, we're going to move from this proper Catholic view of freedom, builds on human nature, that is perfectible, that is virtuous, to this description of the postmodern view of freedom that has its roots in Occam's nominalism. And so we, of course, can go back to a lot of that to be able to do our best to describe it. It's a little, a little more complicated. But first of all, when I and we call it, or Pink Airs calls it, the freedom of indifference. When I say indifference, I am not talking about like uh, I don't care. That, that's not what it means. I don't. When he wrote this in original French, I don't know what word he used, but it's not that. It, it means a, a freedom that is indifferent, that is not ordered towards an end. And there are different ways to understand it, and we'll kind of go through it. What are the roots of this postmodern or this this non-Catholic view of freedom? It has its roots in the thought of Occam, both in his concept of God and the origin of who he is in the moral law and in anthropology. So Occam's view of, of human freedom is rooted in his understanding of God's divine freedom. So, yeah, y'all can probably guess this. This is the freedom. The whole the whole issue was if we say that there are natures, if there are universals, then God for Occam, God's freedom is limited. So, and as a result, there are no natures, and the moral law emanates from God's will. So, so it's a freedom that is ultimately not grounded in its intellect and located in the divine will. So we should be able to understand that from what we talked about. Freedom is located in its divine will. God's freedom becomes a freedom to choose between contraries. This is indifference. It's not one that is ordered towards an end, but it is indifferent. I am God. I can choose between contraries. I can choose between whatever I want. Murder could be good. Murder could be evil. Because to say that somehow one is morally incorrect because it goes against the quote-unquote natural law or by nature which is inherent in creation would somehow limit his freedom. So... And again, I am not an ex- expert in, in Occam. I've read a, a bit about nominalism and some of this stuff. For Occam, freedom, in a certain sense, or the exercise of freedom in the will, preceded the intellect. Because from his experience, Occam knew that he was free to think or not to think. Interesting. I am, I'm free to think or I'm free not to think. So freedom became the primary human experience and ended up being located in the will. And of course it also, so that, that's the, 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 in a certain sense, the first part is the divine uh, aspect of it, of our understanding of God and his freedom. And then the other comes from the human. 
the anthropological and his denial of human nature and those natural inclinations present in human nature. Freedom from natural inclinations and human nature that are rooted in this metaphysical category would guide freedom to its proper end. So it's no longer is freedom for Occam rooted in the person's spontaneous inclination to the true and the good present in his nature. Because for him, these, these inclinations did not, did not precede freedom, but were subject to the will's command and determination. So as an example, sexual movements as a natural appetite, as an inclination, would be useless for determining a natural end. Because there is no nature. Commandment and will... directs the sexual movement. So you have these movements, you have these inclinations, but you don't say, oh, this is ordered towards a good according to my nature. But I have this divine command that says, do not commit adultery. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so uh, according to this proper view of freedom connected to our nature, well, I have a natural inclination towards sex and marriage. Well, when I act in accord with that comes from my body, that comes from my person, that comes from my human nature. So I, when I act in accord with that, well, this is a good thing for me. But if there is no human nature, then these natural inclinations are not ordered towards anything. And so but there still has to be a law. I, I still should use these in the proper way. So instead of, hey, listen, I have these natural inclinations and this is, got, you know, this belongs here and all these things work together. Well, this is going to help perfect me. But if there's no human nature, there's no, you can't trust that the natural inclinations are inclined towards a telos, but you still have to preserve the natural law. The commandment comes and works to direct the sexual movement from the outside. So what happens is then freedom becomes a choice between contraries. To, to commit adultery or not to commit adultery. To do this thing or to do that thing. Because there's nothing naturally inclining me towards the good. And, and this is, of course, how we see that our, our human freedom doesn't participate in the same way in God's freedom, but it's sort of, because we are in the image and likeness of God, it's sort of connected there. Or, or God is, is emanating the laws from his concept of freedom, so our, our concept of freedom becomes kind of the same thing. Since there is no reference to human nature, you are either free to choose to perform an action or not to. This is actually from Occam. And, and this quote, I think, is pretty important because it, it contains a lot of words and phrases that will make uh, a bit more sense. He says, what I mean by freedom is the power, aha, power, I have to produce various effects indifferently and in a contingent manner. 
in such a way that I can either cause an effect or not cause it without any change being produced outside of this power. So notice, it's about power. It's about the will. And, and, and I can have this impact in any way that I choose because there's no ordering towards it. Uh, without any change being produced outside of this power. <laughs> well, I think changed himself. Yeah. Because you are, because you are, you're, you're. Correct. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm impacting the outside world, but interiorly, there's no, um, no change. So freedom is no longer rooted in or guided by our natural inclinations. Nature isn't leading you in one direction. It's completely contingent. And of course, this ties back to the divine concept of freedom as the ability to choose between contraries to secure God's freedom. But with the moral law issuing from God's will alone, the moral life for man is solely one of obeying the law. It does not, or it, there's no concept of it perfecting or moving towards an end or perfecting the being. Since, of course, there could be no reference to human nature, natural inclinations that might limit freedom. So freedom is thus, in every instance, obeying or not obeying the moral laws. Freedom, ultimately, I think, is power. What are some of the other impacts or, or, or things that that result from this view of freedom? And I guess this is, maybe we'll phrase this a little. It, it leads to a rejection of habitus and virtues. So of course, the habitus is the growth in virtue that, that our individual actions build on each other. But if there was virtue... Also, why would virtue be contrary to this concept of freedom of indifference? Because it establishes an inclination that upsets the perfect either or balance that he wants to Correct, yes. Because if I'm disposed in a certain direction, well, then I'm less free because I can't choose between op opposites. There has to be this, this autonomy to be able to choose between opposites. We still want to choose. This is not, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre's view of freedom. Where, but there is still a divine command. We're just following that divine command from the outside. We're not following our natural inclination towards the good. Because as the habit would grow stronger, the freedom to choose between contraries would thus be limited. And here we have the seeds of a devaluing of the virtue of ethics and brought to one of obligation. So I'm having a hard time connecting, like, choosing between opposites and how that ends up being 
action, you're still choosing like the good action just from external. How does that connect to power? Well, because because of the will. Remember, power I think is connected to the will. And so you are making the right choice, not because it is inherent in your nature, where you're following for the intellect. It's connected from the the preceding to the will to power. It's not the will to power, but that's what it is. And and this is this is where we get closer to our 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 big pirate example. Finally, possibly today. So the first thing is, is it leads to a rejection of habitus and virtues. Number two, it's a break of moral continuity in action. Meaning that no longer was the moral life or moral action sort of organic in its development. Freedom is a choice between contraries means that it's not possible to allow past actions to determine actions at the present moment. So again, yeah, it's still connected to habitus and virtues. Each moral action becomes isolated. There's no continuity. There's no organic growth. Which third, leads to a a radical autonomy and moral subjectivity. So you see the seeds of that. The, the will becomes all-powerful in the moral life. And you call it a certain will to power. I'm exerting my authority by following the rules, even this exterior. Although this was not Occam's intention, many centuries afterwards it has led to a morality with no guidance from the intellect and an ignoring of natural inclinations. I mean, it first brings about the, 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 oblig- the duty-based ethic, and then, once you deny even a lawgiver from the outside, the person is free to will and choose his own moral code. So it's no law. There was still obedience to an exterior moral code for Occam, but once you get past the death of metaphysics, I'm making my own moral code. And it, hey, it's it's in a continuum. It's in a flux. You can make it and change every day. You can also see it, and I, I like the section that was in the Waddell book, where it becomes the roots of a very selfish view of freedom as the freedom to fulfill my own desires. Self-fulfillment is the highest good, but it's not distinguishing what is good because there are no inherent goods present in me. I decide what is good. That goes back to the, the relativism. Or if you want to call it the expressive individualism. So there's this this competition of one's desires and one's freedoms and ultimately leading to a weakening of the community because as we're going to see, a proper concept of freedom believes your freedom is contained within a community of other freedoms. You're not just completely autonomous because your actions influence are in seen in accord with other people's freedom too.
but we're going to get into that. So let's give it a shot, even though there's a lot more I want to cover, and we're probably going to get to it. I hope this doesn't take three times to do it. We'll see how long our, our pirate example works. There, let, let us say, this is, I don't even know where I came up with this. I came up with this years ago. Maybe this is not the best place to put it, but I've been teasing you all so long with it. All right. There is a pirate or who, who has just recently come to know Jesus. He's, he's had a conversion. He's gone through RSAA. He's baptized the Easter Vigil. And he's like, I'm going to live a good moral life. And he's walking down the street. He's downtown. He's downtown like Charles, because that's where all the pirates are. Yes. He's yes. there for contraband days. We don't call that contraband Louisiana days. Louisiana Pirate Festival. Louisiana Pirate Festival. And he sees a $100 bill on the ground. And the pirate says, Arg! I want that $100 bill. I want the booty. But he's, 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 he's frustrated. He knows that Jesus does not want him to take that money because it's not his. And he grits his teeth. You know, he beats his peg leg into the ground and he walks on. And, and, And he keeps thinking about, oh, but I did it. I did it. I did not take that money. But then later, maybe 10 minutes later, one of the missionaries of charity walk by. Missionaries of Charity traveling, I guess, from Houston to Lafayette or whatever for a day of reflection. She walks by and she sees the $100 bill and sister's busily praying her rosary and she said, oh, look, it is a $100 bill. It is not mine. <laughs> I could give it to the poor, but no, I, I will, we will wait to see someone who, who has it. I will go back to pray my rosary and and loving the poor, and she just walks past, not even, not even tempted, and she goes to do her her holy thing. Finally, professed sister. And this is the the, the question that I posed it, and, and 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 when I posed it before, I remember, I mean, we started a fight in a deacon class, not a physical fight, but like there was some tension against me and the whole the whole other parties in it. And a lot of it is difficult because I, I, I've got to phrase it properly. Which one of the two committed the more perfect moral act? The pirate or the sister? Now, granted, we'll see what the vote is, and then maybe I could change some of the wording. Who committed the more perfect, the moral I want to say laudable, but the more perfect moral act. Who in here will say the pirate? Raise your hand. Okay. Who in here will say the sister? All right. We have one nominalist of the class. Yay. Tell it. Give me, give me your, give me your argument. Give me your argument. Okay. Like, I would say, like, I, I'm not coming from like a comic like duty sort of thing either. I'm just saying like, I'm just saying like, what? was a greater growth in 
like towards virtue, someone who overcame their evil nature, or someone who wasn't tempted at all. What was a more virtue? Who made a more profound virtuous choice? Okay. By refusing. Well, Nick, we'll see what Nick says. Could we make a distinction between the virtuous act in itself and the growth in virtue? Yeah, you can make that. You can make. This is where there's some distinctions that can be made, but that's why I said the more perfect moral act. The, 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 and we're going to get to a different distinction. Who, who wants to respond to what, what the hammer had to say? Yes, Tyler. I, 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 would, I, would, I, would, I would say the more perfect moral act would lie with the sister, or in, insofar as she was so great in her virtue in her act that that you know it had never even been a thing it was so habitual in her it wasn't even a thought where she had to debate it uh, i would say if, if your definition you almost said there the more laudable act i'd say it was the pirate but okay for, for the sister it was that was just more virtuous hey, what do you think so with i think it relates to the question of nature because if nominalism states that there's a human nature then you are like it's just about a choice then you can choose to take up the bill or not, but our nature, if it's um, you know, at, like without like open conversation and all that, is to just simply not do it. Like, mm-hmm. You are not necessarily even thinking about it. You're just acting in accord with your nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so the pirate, you can laud him for not doing it, but he fought it. But you also mentioned like, like I did, I did, I did. Mm-hmm. It's more about his choice, his will, than rather just working in accord with his nature. And obviously, that takes growth. Yeah. So next year's festival, go, won't think about it, but, yeah, next year he's going to go to Festival of and not to Contraband Days. I mean, you could use this example a hundred different ways. All right, so who, who grew in virtue? Two guys give up for Lent sweets. One person's in the seminary where they don't do sweets during Lent, so they're not even tempted by it. So it's basically, I'm not saying it's like not valid, but he doesn't. Then they come into contact with any temptation. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a moot point. Or the person who works, you know, works in a bakery, who just like loves sweets, loves cooking, and gives them up. That person is facing real trial, which you have to be tested by to grow virgin. Okay. Zeldon? Well, I forget who said the line, but there was a very famous philosopher who said, we're dismissively so much for Emmanuel Kant. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I feel like right now. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get Aquinas on this because I think he's got the answer. Um, what is good is the perfection of being uh, or perfection of nature. And when we're talking about continence uh, is the word that I think he would use. So the continent man is, and he gets that from Aristotle, the continent man is the one who struggles. Is, he's the pirate, he's the classic continent man. He's, he's not incontinent. You know, he's, he's, he's not controlled by his passions and his desires. He's aware of them and he has to fight them directly. So he's not perfect yet. Mm-hmm. He's still training. Correct. And so it's laudable and it's virtuous, mm-hmm. but it's not perfection. It's not as good as the, the nun who is, who is above it. Her act is a participation in her further perfected nature. Correct. And that, that, that is going to be, I would say, the correct answer, even though there's that distinction that's so important. And I think what Joseph is trying to say. Who has made the more perfect moral act? It's the sister, in the sense that whether it be continence, temperance, whatever, she she has practiced all these years where she's not even tempted because she knows it doesn't belong to her. She's going to do the right thing. She's freer to do that. 
Now, she might even be free to say, I'm going to take this and go give it to the poor or something. But it comes easy for her. And so here, but that's years of building on virtue and moving towards her end of goodness. The pirate probably maybe got more merit because of that. He is more laudable because he is at the beginning of his trial. His nature is not perfected yet. So maybe another way we put it is, let's say that you had the expert pianist who comes out there and just plays this majestic uh, sonata versus you're the parents who are going to your kid's first piano recital. You know, who is the better piano player? Who's the, the better musician? Who's the more, who played the more perfect piece? No one's going to deny it's the older person, but you're going to take that kid out for a happy meal and some ice cream afterwards because he's laudable. I mean, he, he put forth the effort to play that. And so that's, I think, the way we would look at it. Um, you could, yes, look at it, but that's what we tie it back to, is here, according to sort of a, a reductionistic way of looking at Occam, if each individual act is, is evaluated, yeah, he took a lot of struggle to do it because he knew the law that was coming up from outside of him. But Mother Teresa's, I'm not saying this was a nominalistic pirate. That might be, a, maybe we could look at it a different way. Uh, but Mother Teresa's sister had perfected her nature by, by moving forward in that direction. We'll continue that discussion a little bit later, possibly, but I just think that's where we insert it in, but to show that a difference between one may be more laudable and more merit, you're gonna love your kid. Hey, Mr. Pyro, you did a great job, go get him. But the sister, you wouldn't think, that's such a holy sister because she resisted it. No, you figure that's what a sister's supposed to do. You wouldn't be surprised by it. So anyhow, I want to keep that in mind and seeing this as indifference to this choice between opposites. But Occam is not the only influence. And that's why it's so important to read that article from Ratzinger on Truth and Freedom. Because, and I'm going to kind of give you a summary here of what he talks about. Um, because even though the roots are there in Occam, in this denial of human nature, Freedom is sort of almost that will to power of, of exerting influence, the choosing between not just opposites, but the, the choice between A, B, C, or D. You just make your choice. That's not going to necessarily transform or perfect a nature because there's no perfectibility. Ratzinger is going to look at two other, looking at this, he's talking about this postmodern view of freedom as autonomy, of liberty as license. He's not going to refer to Occam in this, but you're going to see there some some connections, particularly as you, he saw that that expression. Remember that the, the thing from we talked about from Marx, I can do whatever I want whenever I want. That's where you can see the nominalistic roots there, in in a uh, Luther. I mean uh, in Marx, but he is going to talk about Luther is a first part of the step, or another part of the step where Luther comes out and speaks about freedom, the freedom of conscience from the authority of the church. Now, I'm, you have to read the article. I'm giving you a very broad overview here. Where Luther said, no, I, I, we're truly free. I don't need this exterior authority guiding me and telling me what to do, which, of course, is tied to personal salvation. 
Now, granted, you could probably read some of the books that, that I may have suggested that shows how nominalism through Gabriel Beale impacted him. But this idea of freedom is completely autonomous. And then the next one goes to Kant. Not Kant denying metaphysical, the ability, the reason to, to, to perceive metaphysical truth, but still the supremacy of reason, supremacy, that we can have a reason itself dictating moral theology. We don't need, I'm going to construct a, a sort of this imminent moral theology based on re, a pure reason without the guidance of or the acceptance of some divine rule giver. When he says that this, this supremacy of reason, which of course becomes autonomous, is the fundamental tendency of the Enlightenment. And he says it gives way to two different expressions of freedom within, let's say, a, a society. One is the Anglo-Saxon that finds its fruit in constitutional democracies. Locke and his, his buddies. And then the other that he pins it on, and which is something else I, I was just about to start reading, is Rousseau. Now, y'all studied all these guys. Rousseau's vision is complete autocracy. I, I do not want governments or society or whatever telling me what to do. Now, for him, there's like no nature, no metaphysics. It's an unrestrained frenzy of nature. And so with all of this <coughs> movement here within the Enlightenment, human rights come to the fore. This con the concept of human rights kind of existed before, but here, particularly with Rousseau, the contemporary concept of human rights come. And it's an important advancement. And it's good. We like human rights. But what it leads to is it's rooted in my rights are above and beyond the supremacy of the state. But it's not rights as we might understand it. Rights is rooted in human nature. It's just sort of this right of the individual being as opposed to the state, thus pitting the individual and his rights versus the authority of the state. I don't need the authority of the state. I don't need society. So it becomes this sort of anarchical view of freedom. Not anarchy as we normally understand it, but the, the the roots of the, the ultimate autonomy of the individual. He'll then go on to show how Marxism arises from this or is connected to it. As we see, freedom of no restraints. But yet Marx will see that this is what we this is the goal. We want this, but in order to, to get this type of freedom, what must we do? Well, we need to struggle to overthrow the unjust structures of the world. So there's a, there's a certain sense that we want equality. We want everybody to have 
this ability to exercise freedom as they want. But in order to do so, we're going to have to give up certain freedoms during the struggle to get to that. Now, of course, Marx made a big mistake about human nature and once human nature and also the ability to progress because we're never going to get to that. We're never going to have perfectibility on the earth. And then he sees, though, all of this individualism, its roots in Marxist ideology here at the latter part of the 20th century of some of the genuine discrepancies between wealth and privilege and capitalism and the way that this view of freedom is completely autonomous impacts it. And so we can get into more discussions of social justice, <clears throat> dictatorship, whatever. But what I thought was brilliant in this, and this is where I might be able to start landing the plane, for those who read it, what moral example, real moral, concrete moral example, does Ratzinger use to describe this vision of freedom, one without truth, one without nature, one that is sort of this amalgam of all of these different concepts. What is, he calls it the hideous expression, abortion. Yeah, it's abortion. Where basically you pit the freedom of the mother against the, the child. The child is some another being, another person is limiting my freedom, and they will have nothing doing that. And therefore, it's this idea, this radical vision of freedom that justifies abortion. But Ratzinger says this is not the way to look at it. And he uses this, I, I, I love the... The concepts he used. Did anybody read it? Remembers the two concepts he used? Being for and being with. That the child is being with, and it implies a certain dependency on the mother, but the mother realizing the dependency the child has on him must come to understand herself as being for. My existence exists for this child. The being with the child should compel the mother, the child making demands on her. But in a proper concept of freedom, and the interactions of these two beings and these two freedoms, the mother should say, my existence is for this child. This child's dependence on me limits my freedom, but that's not a bad thing. This is in accord with human nature. This is in accord with most people would see would be logically good. So even though he doesn't phrase it there in this way, that what happens is, is in the case of abortion, her freedom for the child becomes a what? A freedom what? 
from. So being for and should be oriented as a freedom for being with, but instead with abortion it's flipped, that freedom becomes freedom from any inherent limits of my freedom. But here's this great quote. He says, quote, I must still accept the limits of my freedom, or rather, I must live my freedom not out of competition, but in a spirit of mutual support. So this is all implying that you can believe your freedom is autonomy all you want, but there are other agents that are connected to you. Your freedom is exercised within a community of, of other contingent beings, and many of them are dependent on you, and you were dependent on them. So he says, if we open our eyes, we see that this in turn is not only true of a child, but that the child in the mother's womb is simply a very graphic description of the essence of human existence in general. So then the child is the representation of all of our existences. Even the adult can exist only with and from another. And this continually thrown back on the being for, which is the very thing he would like to shut out. But we can't. We are being with. We're dependent on our existence on our parents, on God to sustain us. And there are others that are dependent on us. Let us say even more precisely, man quite spontaneously takes for granted the being for of others in the form of today's network of service systems. Yet if he had his way, he'd prefer not to be forced to participate in such a from and for, but would like to become wholly independent and to be able to do and not do just what he pleases. This quote in this article, if the for the proposition team would have had in the debate and used effectively could have smoked Mr. Zeldin and his team because it implies being for, yes, you're autonomous, but you cannot take your conscience and your freedom with outside of this greater web. I'm not saying that they would have won, but it's true. I will not have anything limit my freedom. Well, this is abortion, but what else is this? This is, I'm not even going to wear a mask to church because I will have nothing limit my freedom. So the same root on the left is the same root on the right. Granted, I can understand vaccines a little bit more invasive, but as I told you, the people that I refuse to wear a mask, you're no different than the pro-abortionist. No different. It's true. It's still freedom is autonomy. <laughs> well, at its root, its freedom is autonomy. Do they have a right to say you are immoral if you don't put drugs in your body for me? No, I didn't say. I said the mask. I said the mask. But I mean, what, why? Okay, so the mask, right? You could do. You could say like you. All right. And now you can use the same way, either way, because you're not living freedom for. You're living freedom from. Yeah. No, no, abortion is a completely different thing, but it's still the same basic attitude. 
And, and so Ratzinger goes on to say this is an example of how we want to break from all dependencies outside of ourselves. We want to be like gods. And so he says, if we look more closely, we must assert the exact opposite. The implicit goal of all modernity struggles for freedom is to be at last like a God who depends on nothing and no one, and whose own freedom is not restricted by that of another. But the reality is, if we realize, uh, this is what we're going to talk about in bioethics, when Carter Sneed, in his little book, What It Means to Be Human, talks about our, our public policy about abortion and life issues is all rooted in this idea that I am not dependent on anybody, and I owe no one anyone that I'm not being with, nor am I being for. What's so amazing to me now is that you used to be able to argue uh, abortion to the mother, and the mother would say, well, it's not a, it's not a person yet, right? Mm-hmm. And now that I admit that, that I am killing someone, they still do. Oh, yeah, because the, your, your, your existence is coming into to a wall and it's going to limit my existence, my freedom. And so he says that we don't become like gods, we end up creating idols. They end up a diabolical attitude. But he also says, though, that this explains our nature as ultimately Trinitarian. Then we're going back here to the image and likeness of God, that we are the sons of God. Quote, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for Father, being from Son, and being with Holy Spirit. Man, for his part, is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So I need to bring that back to anthropology. We are being for, being from, and being with. Whatever there is an attempt to free ourselves from this pattern, we are not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization, to the destruction of being itself, through the destruction of the truth. Yes? Two questions. One, could you repeat the, each of the beings with each of the beings? Okay. F- Father is being for. Son is being from, assuming his generation. And Holy Spirit is being with. Again, maybe another place he describes this more. But basically, is our being, our person is established in relationship to other persons. And our freedom, just as our being, exists in relation to other freedoms, both human and divine. The freedom of autonomy d- doesn't want to see that, yes? So, is being uh, out, when we were kind of explaining, especially with, like the abortion example, it may sound that like being from had a negative connotation, but you're acting more so out of your own self rather than being, that, you know, you're being away well, from another thing. Well, that be, being, when I meant freedom, being from is positive, freedom from is not positive. Just make it. I know we got a lot of froms and fors. There's a lot of prepositions going on here. But I, I, let, let me try to, I need to land this plane because I, I think I can do it. How then do you understand that my freedom is, is in relation to other freedoms and other beings? How do we justly order those? Well, Ratzinger says you can't just look at your own little small group. You've got to see it as the whole of humanity. 
not just now, but also in the future. How are my actions going to affect people in the future? He calls it a coexistence of freedoms. So if we're going to, to exercise our freedom properly, you have to see it in relation to other free beings in the community. And this, of course, is going to connect to conscience. We're going to look at it a bit later, later on. So he says, that means if we're going to talk about freedom in communion, freedom along in relation to other freedoms, what's the key word? Responsibility. He says, quote, increase in freedom must have an increase in responsibility, which includes acceptance of the other greater bonds required by the claims of humanity's shared existence and by conformity to man's essence. So if indeed freedom exists in relations to other freedoms, the proper concept of freedom is going to ask not what is my right, but what is my duty or what is my responsibility to others? That's the first question that you ask. And of course, he'll then say that it all has recourse to this concept of human nature shared among all humans and the Decalogue as an expression of it. I'll add that this is also a fulfillment of what we really kind of talked about earlier as the, the theodrama, that, that we, we, are, we are acting in relation to others who have missions and roles in this whole drama of human existence. And so we've got to ask, how does the role I play and the way I exercise my freedom impact others? And do I realize that my role comes from God and the Spirit is guiding me? But I, I kind of want to close on this, and this is something that I, I as I was reading Ratzinger and I, as I was preparing today, that kind of struck me. And I have not had a chance to really flesh it out. This might be a whole separate talk at another time. Thinking about this, the child, when Ratzinger says the child is sort of that representation of all of humanity, of our existence, is dependent on God and is in relation to others and our willingness to be for them and with them, this interconnectedness. Can we connect it to our earlier discussion of identity and filial morality? and the basis of spiritual childhood. Remember, we're all children. We're all dependent on God. And in a certain sense, we're all dependent on others. We're weak, dependent creatures. And so I just put some thoughts together. And maybe y'all can develop this more and, and it would come up with something else. That the child is not autonomous. The child is always being with dependent on the mom and others in the same way that we are dependent on God. We are always being with. We're contingent beings. We're not autonomous if we understand our existence as a child of the Father. Number two, the child has no freedom to, as power to dominate. Not at all. The child must be receptive and accepting. If you want to understand freedom in a spiritual sense, the book that I'll recommend is Father Jacques Philippe's Interior Freedom. How many of y'all have read that? That's uh, an awesome book. This is, this is where the whole spiritual life intersects with this concept of freedom. Right here. The highest and most fruitful form of human freedom is found in accepting even more than dominating. 
We show the greatness of our freedom when we transform reality. We impact the world, but still more when we accept it trustingly as it is given to us day after day. It's different than the, the, that what we talked about, that technological paradigm. My freedom exists in order for me to control, dominate, manipulate. And then to be a child is to be weak. To know your inherent limitations. And so often we don't want to accept our limitations. We don't want to accept reality, and so we fight against it. This is not spiritual childhood. But the thing that it really kind of struck me, and this is something I've been talking about in different retreats I've given, is the thing that is the most emblematic or representative of a child is not dependency, is not weakness, but I would say is play. And there's, we've talked a little bit about play. Carl Rahner talks about it. Ratzinger talks about play in his book on the liturgy. Hugo Rahner wrote that book, Man at Play. So true play is you can't have Calvin Ball, but there's a lot of freedom there. And, And we have to play with others. We have to learn how to interact. So childhood play is the way that we learn to exercise our freedom as we get o- older. There, there's a parent still there guiding us. But still, how, how, how does our learning to play by the rules and learning to play fair and learning to enjoy play and have a good time, there's something called in therapy non-directive play where they'll have a bunch of stuff and the, the, the adult or the therapist will come with the kid and the kid's in a room, the kid can't just go do whatever he wants, but he lets the child choose what he wants to do, what he wants to build, and to sort of see that direct where the child goes. But it, it is like a playground, it's the same, there, there are limitations, there's only so much you can do. Yes? Well, I remember hearing studies of like, you put a kid in a Yeah, there, there's a whole theory of, of play. What's the guy's name? Oh, I forgot his name. There's a lot of stuff. But actually, yeah, what's his name? No, it's a different one. I'll remember after class is over. I've just been thinking and reflecting a lot on play lately. But, you know, I'll, I'll post it. There's this, my favorite podcast is 99% Invisible, which deals with art and architecture and design. And they have one called Freibel's Gifts. I got the guy's first name, Josef Freibel, I think. He was a German. And he has impacted every single person, probably every single person in this class, in ways that have impacted you more than probably anything else, and you don't even know who he is. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to go figure it out yourself. I'll post the podcast. So ultimately what happens is, is Romans 8.12. It's the freedom of the sons of God. This is the freedom of the children of God. And you can tie it back to this whole idea of growth and freedom. That even though, yes, we become adult, when we have a creative life-giving freedom, that's when we're most like children. Where we have that creativity to play. Where we're, 
We're, we're, we're following certain rules. You're right. You're in the sandbox, but you move me out of the sandbox without any rules, without any bearing. What do I do? I, ne- I need some, some blocks to play with. And, and particularly what Freibel, how Freibel impacted society, you're going to see you, you can't have no rules, you can't have too many rules. You need something right in between for play to really happen. And yes, while we, can, we all have our play styles, some like to play by ourselves, it's play that we learn to relate, we learn to exercise our freedom and to live out this filial morality. So I finished in two. And it's a lot, and in the last part, I would love any kind of insights into it. And, and this is so important, though, because if one of the good things that we share with the, the postmodern atheist peoples, we both think freedom is good. This is why John Paul II was so great. John Paul II, you think freedom is good? I think freedom is good. We just have two different concepts of freedom. So, so let's start talking about what is the better view of freedom? And, and you know, a lot of the... T- I've maybe told you that, that, that phrase that I read an article. Somebody came up to this guy, this pastor, and said, I don't believe in God. And he said, good. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. I probably don't believe in him either. <laughs> and so the same thing, you know, if we can get in discussion... What is your concept of freedom? And we begin to ask proper questions. Maybe we can guide people down the line. That freedom does not lead to happiness. It can't just be this freedom between different choices because then it just becomes the will to power and it's not ordered towards excellence or your perfection or virtue. Not going to make you happy. So we'll come back next week and we will talk about object, act, uh, intention, and circumstances the three parts of the moral act. And once we get all those pieces together, then we can talk about conscience and then morality in regards to the church and society. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Those at the beginning, is now, and never shall be, or without end. Amen.